from downtown Milwaukee, welcome to Money Talk with Bob Landis. Each week, professional advisors from Landis and Company Investments discuss the latest financial developments, offering timely insight and long-term perspective. This is Money Talk for October 13th, Friday the 13th, 2023. Checking the calendar, the Packers are off again this week. They have a bye. The Bucks are in Los Angeles and Oklahoma City for a couple of preseason games. And the Milwaukee Brewers, well, wait till next year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, here we go. In Canada, a black bear walked into a gas station bar, took a pack of gummies, and left. Of course, without paying. If he had paid, we wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> Speaking of black bears, apparently bears can join the Naples, Florida Yacht Club. Last week, a black bear was spotted at a 50-foot catamaran docked at the Yacht Club. That sounds like an episode of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> this next one is about as strange as I've ever heard. In Peru and South America, a man was found to be carrying around an 800-year-old mummified corpse in a food delivery bag. It couldn't possibly be a DoorDash, could it? (laughs) Finally, let's hope this next guy isn't doing delivery of any kind. A man driving a tractor in Pennsylvania was arrested for driving under the influence just 17 minutes after he was released from custody for the very same thing. Yo, buddy, let me tell you about my friend Bill W. On the podcast today, we have Steve Giles, Kendall Bauer, Joel Dreesing, and wrapping up the week, here's Kyle Tedding. And a bit of an interesting week overall. The S&P finished the week up four-tenths of a percent, closing at 43.28. The NASDAQ, however, down two-tenths of a percent, down 24 points this week, closing at 13.407. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the big winner on the week, up 263 points to close up eight-tenths of a percent, closing at the bell on Friday at 33.671 for the year. However, the Dow still... Lagging the broader markets, up just 3.3%. The S&P up 14.1%. The NASDAQ, despite a down week, still a stellar 28.9% positive return, all including dividends. Uh, For the week, uh, meaningful move lower in Treasury bond yields. Uh, Steve, in particular, on uh, news last weekend of uh, war breaking out in Israel, I think signs that uh, the global stage is now fleeing to uh, U.S. Treasuries uh, in hopes of seeing some safety there. Um, We see this pattern tend to emerge in times of of, uh, war breaking out in parts of the world, Uh, but some needed cover potentially for bond investors who have been getting hit by higher interest rates uh, as a result of the Fed's uh, fight against inflation. As you kind of look at the, the landscape right now, um, what are you seeing from investors, um, you know, kind of looking for, for preservation? Well, yeah, I, I do think that there has been a bit of a flight to safety here uh, this week, Kyle, in light of world events. Uh, and, and certainly there is a lot of uncertainty uh, surrounding uh, what's going to happen here over the next few days and weeks and months uh, in the Middle East. But that shouldn't distract us uh, here in the United States from what is ultimately uh, the same old, same old. Uh, for us, what moves the markets longer term is going to be interest rates and earnings. Uh, earnings continue to uh, be better than what uh, many companies are, are expecting or what they've been reporting are better than what analysts are expecting. Uh, and with where interest rates have been headed, I think the slight pullback this week has not deterred the longer term trend of interest rates across the board going up. 
Uh, we're starting to see a yield curve that is suggesting that the bond market itself is kind of doing the Fed's work for them. Uh, the Fed had been talking for a long time about uh, not being done raising rates, that they might have one or two more rate uh, increases in them over the next couple of quarters. But with where bond traders have sent yields in that intermediate term range, uh, they may be pushing rates to a level that is uh, going to cause the Fed to maybe not have to raise rates, which I think is an interesting proposition as we turn the corner into next year. Yeah, higher for longer, perhaps the the words we'll be able to say for uh, for quite a bit now, the transitory of late 2021 into 22. And uh, the days of of extremely high inflation, hopefully far behind us now. But you know, where where do rates go from here? They probably they probably stay up, maybe not as high as as they can go, but higher than than what we thought for a while. I do think it's interesting that the interest in short term CDs and high yielding money market accounts has begun to uh, increase as of late. Uh, and I think a good reminder to our listeners is that. The shape of the yield curve right now is suggestive that rates currently at this five, five and a quarter, five and a half percent range on, on money markets and four or five, six month CDs is probably not going to be around for much longer. Uh, I think it's important for investors to not fall victim to the tying their money up into short term of a product for fear that when that when that issue comes due in nine months, uh, yields will be much, much lower. Ask yourself the question before you buy that one-year CD at 5%, where will rates be when you want to re-up that CD after it comes due? Uh, we're starting to talk about lengthening durations on our portfolios. Obviously, Bob mentioned that at the seminar. And for those investors who have a longer-term time horizon uh, and can hold on to those bonds for a little bit longer, locking in higher uh, a, a higher yield for a little bit longer makes a lot of sense when yields start to fall. No, Steve, I think that makes perfect sense. And Kendall, I know you've had these conversations at length. I'm sure you've got some thoughts you want to share. Yeah, just to piggyback, Steve, on what you just said, I think the other upside, too, of not pigeonholing yourself necessarily into um, something like a CD or treasury where you have to make a decision upon maturity, one of the benefits of things like mutual funds, ETFs, index funds, is the upside that they will receive when the Fed begins cutting rates as well. You lose that um, if you are sticking too short on the duration curve. Um, so another thing to keep in mind. Can I ask, how, how much do, um, do bond fund managers adjust those durations? You know, they are constantly looking at the market to get an understanding of, and in particular with respect to the yield curve, to get an understanding of where should we be positioning this portfolio for the best opportunity for our investors? And the caveat there is that um, if you run a mutual fund, you are mandated, based on the language of your prospectus, to a particular objective. And so that might mean that you look like the bond market in aggregate, the aggregate bond index. It might mean that you're plus or minus one or two years the duration of the index, if you've got a little more latitude, or it might mean that if you've got wide latitude to invest across fixed income, that you can pick and choose your spot. And what we've seen largely is that as interest rates have come up more broadly, there are bond portfolio managers out there that are saying, 
all right, I love the the interest we can get on these short-term bonds, but we know that's fleeting. And we know that six months or a year from now, um, if interest rates have come back down even a little bit, we would have been happier capturing those high rates that, that exist on a five or a 10-year note, not just the one-year note, because it means we're getting paid that for the next five or 10 years. And so I think this is an opportunity for many investors to say, let's lock this in beyond just today. For those investors, Joel, that have shorter duration bond funds that might be in the two to three year range, consider that those funds have stuff that's coming due more frequently. So they're able to re-up their uh, yields to the now higher prevailing rates. Unfortunately, as Kyle mentions, by prospectus, they really can't go out past three or four years. Uh, So the only way for investors to garner the higher yields for longer is to go into a more intermediate or longer duration bond. And even those bond funds um, have uh, prospectus language such that they they really can't go out past what's in the prospectus, but you really don't want to. Uh, Longer term bonds are just much more volatile. We're talking about intermediate and long-term durations that I think peak out in the seven to eight to nine year range. You start getting double digit on your bond funds and uh, that's a very wild ride when rates start to move. And important to remember that inverse relationship between bond prices and rates. So, you know, to your point, Steve, a 10-year duration bond fund, if we see a, an interest rate move higher of just 1%, that's a 10% decline in the price of your bonds. And so when we're talking about our safe money, one of the reasons why long-term for us isn't a 10-year bond portfolio, it's a six or seven, is because there is still that sensitivity of what if we're wrong, what if rates can go much higher from here. Engaging from the Fed's dot plot, uh, they're expecting to settle into a rate somewhere in that two and a half to three and a half percent range. Well, that's two percentage points lower than where we are now, three percentage points lower than where we are now. So, Joel, if you have a five-year duration bond fund and the Fed moves from 5% uh, in an overnight rate back down to 3 that 2% fall in yields just gave you a 10 to 12% uh, increase or, or uh, price reappreciation in the underlying bonds that you own. Because the math, the math works both ways, uh, to the negative and to the positive when, when rates are falling. So, Kendall, we're talking a lot about bonds here, but there's a lot going on in the stock market as well. This year, the the NASDAQ, the kind of more growth-heavy version of, um, you know, broad indexes up 20, almost 29%, including dividends. The Dow or the S&P, a little more narrowly focused, not up quite as much. Uh, and then you look at maybe value stocks that have certainly been the laggards with respect to kind of the growth and value conversation at least year to date. And then you start to look at some longer term numbers and maybe the the story starts to change a little bit. Yeah. Interestingly enough, um, value has actually outperformed growth over the last three years. Um, I looked this up and by about 150 basis points. So you may see your next statement coming out for last month and see value stocks maybe a little flat and your growth stocks up pushing maybe 20%. Uh, and say, hey, why do why do we own this? Or ask your advisor, what, remind me again why we own this when it's so far behind. Well, because when things head south like last year, in most cases, that was the star performer on the stock side of your portfolio. So I think we have said this more than enough times on this podcast. Um, you want to own both. And that's why we preach the balanced philosophy that we do. 
Um, even when things may not look so great year to date or falling behind, sometimes it's worth backing up a little bit. Well, and increasingly, I think the conversation that we're now having is not value or growth, but in changing how we define value and growth, right? That I'm not willing to pay through the nose for a high-flying growth company. I want to get a good deal when I buy it. And so that that follows some of the, the traditional value principles, but they don't neatly fall into the value index. And as a result, I think the path forward is less about kind of the traditional definitions of value and growth and more about buying those high-quality businesses that have some growth prospects, but that we can find at a reasonable price. You buy something on sale, you're usually usually going to look pretty smart down the road, especially if it's a business that's going to be around for a while and, and doing good sales. You know, Joel, we got a pretty important number for somewhere between 65 and 70 million Americans um, that count on Social Security for, uh, in most cases, a meaningful portion of their retirement income, uh, and that is the cost of living adjustment uh, that we're going to see for 2024. Yeah, Kyle, uh, the Social Security Administration came out with their um, announcement on the cost of living adjustment for, for next year, and it's 3.2%. So that's affecting, like you say, about 70 million Americans, and on average, that's $50 more a month for, for benefits. I'll take it. I mean, if, uh, if, if it's only 50, maybe it's not quite enough. It comes on the heels of what was a much more substantial increase in the prior year. Um, and certainly, I think when you look at the inflation numbers and go, well, we were here, this isn't nearly enough. Well, remember how the, the formula works. It doesn't just say, here's the exact math on inflation. It looks at a very specific data set. And there's that leg in there. I, I think a year ago when the Social Security announced that it was going to be 8.7% for 2023, which was the highest in 40 years, um, I said, well, wouldn't that be nifty if inflation went down and you're getting a 9% raise and inflation is half that or, or less? And I think the, th the question that you had posed to kind of us as a group ahead of the, the meeting today was, more about what happens with spending as we get into those years in which Social Security is a bigger part of what we do. Um, I mean, feel free to uh, kind of ask the question a little more clearly because it, I think it's worth getting out there. This is kind of the transition that we're looking at as an economy. Well, yeah, as, as um, an economic story, there, you know, I've, I've been reading more articles about how, I mean, we always talk about how spending is important to our economy. And so there's concern that the economy is slowing down. And so what if it slows down too much and goes into a recession? And there have been some articles that have pointed out that, well, you don't have to worry because senior citizens, people over 65, have a lot of money and they don't have to worry as much about things like uh, you know, high mortgage rates or student loans or, you know, a lot of the things that uh, younger people have to worry about. And so they're sitting on a lot of money and they can help spend us out of a, a recession and, and or at least make that recession a softer landing. And and so my question to, to all of you was, I mean, what kind of discussions you're having with clients about that? And, and um, those over 65, those are who are retired, are they actually of a mindset to spend more money. And, and I think broadly speaking, the answer has been the spending doesn't change all that much. It did, right? Immediately following the pandemic, um, you know, ha you had this pent up demand. 
I don't think that's completely off the books yet. I think there's still uh, folks that I talk to who say, well, I didn't quite do all the things I wanted to do my first couple of years of retirement because, because I couldn't, because I didn't want to, because I was concerned about the health risks. Um, and so they're, they're piling that stuff on now. But broadly speaking, it's not a draft, drastic shift in spending. It's a, a confirmation that I'm not counting on my employer anymore to support that spending. And I think when we talk about the risks of a hard landing from what the Fed is trying to accomplish, which is raise rates to slow the rate of growth, the one thing they have fighting them is, well, you got a, a large portion of the consuming population now that isn't dependent on interest rates. Um, and so maybe one of the reasons why a soft landing is more likely this time around uh, is because of the number of people that are they're spending because they can, not because they're still working, not because uh, you know they know they're comfortable not getting laid off, but because they don't have to worry about the job picture, period. And so they need a new car, they're going to go out and buy it. They're probably not all that concerned about interest rates because they've saved their whole life so that they don't have to borrow to buy that car. More importantly, they don't have income coming in the way they used to, and so they probably don't want to tie themselves down with a house payment, with a car payment, uh, with the kinds of things that when you're working, maybe you can't afford it all up front, but you know that as long as the economy is strong enough, you're going to be able to support those payments along the way. And so I think there is a lot to be said about the, the nature of this economic cycle. Uh, dependent upon a population that has clearly aged, that is entering those retirement years. Um, oh, by the way, household net worth, the data point we threw out at uh, the seminar this year, uh, back to record levels in part because of the strong market recovery we've seen the last year. Well, one of the things that those retirees care more about than, uh, than they do about the labor market is, how does my portfolio look? Is my house worth more money? And what's my cost of living adjustment on Social Security going to be? All three of those things support, uh, I think, more confidence in spending than what we might see if we were counting strictly on the labor force. Is, is there advice that you typically give clients or that they ask for as far as spending? And, I mean, we, you know, we talked about revenge spending. Have we seen much of that among retirees? And did, did it go out of bounds and you're trying to rein, help rein it back in or...? Um, I think what I've noticed, Joel, in, in a lot of my meetings is folks eager to get back out traveling after the pandemic. Um, what's interesting, I think, is people love to complain about the cost increases in the day-to-day -day purchases, right? Going to the grocery store costs you another $100, looking at furniture, vehicles, whatever it is, yet they continue to spend money. So being able to, I think, absorb some of that um, increase in, in cost and frankly, you know, all the rate hikes we've endured, um, I think that generation, the baby boomers, are, we're in a position to kind of weather the storm. And I think that has helped lift the economy or at least carry us through, um, you know, a substantial rate hike campaign by the Fed. Well, and I think, you know, the, the critical piece of this is that there was so much you couldn't do for so long that when we talk about the inflationary pressures that are out there, it was in part because you had, you know, Joel, as you said, that revenge spending that kind of chased goods and services. First, it was the goods because that's what you could buy. 
you rebuilt the basement, or you refinished the basement, you put the deck on the house, you re-poured the cement because you had money sitting on the sidelines that was committed to something else, but that's something else you couldn't do. Then we saw kind of chasing some of that services spending. I think there's still some of that out there. Certainly as I talk to clients, I hear, well, we didn't get to travel with the kids or we didn't get to see our kids or we didn't get to do that one trip we really wanted to do. I do see that starting to tail off a little bit. And, you know, Steve, I know you've talked uh, in the past about uh, allowing some flexibility for spending in the in the years kind of coming out of COVID because it was stuff that maybe people had been waiting to spend money on. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, pre-COVID, <clears throat> I think it was part of our responsibility to give clients the courage and the confidence to take money out of their retirement portfolios. I mean, it's so hard <clears throat> as an individual, as a saver, to go your entire life saving, 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 growing, growing, growing. Do I have enough? Do I have enough? And when you finally pull the trigger and realize that you're retired and you don't have a paycheck coming in and you have to still spend money, uh, that's a hard transition to make. And so when you build these portfolios and you talk about withdrawal percentages, uh, part of how I help clients gain the confidence to spend that money in retirement um, is to just do the math. Right? Hey, if you have if you have a million dollars saved up, don't take more than you know four or five percent out, and do all the trips you want. I don't care how you spend it, but if you're worrying about how much you're going to spend on your trip, I think that's the wrong question. It's how much of my portfolio uh, uh, do I have to take out to afford these things that I want to buy. And I think the the final piece of this that um, I always come back to when I'm talking to clients about not just the the spending aspect of retirement, but the saving aspect of retirement is none of this comes in a straight line, right? You don't pick a dollar amount and say, this is the amount I'm going to spend every year or save every year forever because opportunities come up, costs come up, challenges come up. And so we got to take those things as they're happening. And, you know, Steve, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's here's the number. And now, what happens when we change that number? Oh, COVID was awesome from a savings standpoint. I mean, people were all stuck at home. We, we couldn't spend. We had to save. And why do you think that inflation was such a big deal when we came out of the, the shutdowns? Because, right, in, inflation is a function of two things, demand and supply. We had huge demand because everybody wanted to buy stuff again. And we still had continued supply constraints, whether it was cars or supply chain it didn't matter but um uh, you just get back to that point where it's all about balance covid forced everybody to save uh, we came out of covid and this whole revenge spending people are like spending because they're making up for lost time and it'll it'll equal it, it'll eventually even out but it's all a balancing act yeah forced to save but also allowed to save i saw numbers thrown out earlier today in a headline that uh, traveling to work as opposed to being forced to stay home for COVID costs the average employee something like $51 a day when you add up all the various components of wear and tear on the vehicle, gasoline, mm -hmm. the added cost of insurance because you're actually using that vehicle. You add in, well, okay, I'm going to eat out every once in a while now because I'm not just home to, to throw that meal in, in the microwave. And so, you know, I think there are real kind of uh, economic impacts to the very things we're talking about with respect to COVID. Um, and, you know, maybe to put a neat little bow on this, you know, we are still trying to figure out where do where does this settle? 
where where do we end up going forward with respect to demand for travel? Where do we end up with our ability as uh, as working as a working force to be able to save? And what does that mean for what happens going forward? Joel, on the economic front, not a terribly busy week. Um, anything in particular stand out to you from the economic data? Well, we have the consumer price index, which the the social security number was based on, and and um, that's still you know lower than it was a year ago. Um, it you know it's made some progress. Uh, it was uh, year to year it was 3.7 percent in um, in September, and that was um, tied with August for the lowest in 30 months. So so that's pretty good, but but it's still not two percent, which is what the Fed has said that it wants it to be. And but it's down from what was it nine percent in in June of 2022. So um, that's progress, but it's um, sort of stagnating right now. But one of the things that was keeping it up were was uh, gas prices. And you know if you if you drive around, and I don't think that fifty one dollars a day pertains to Steve because he bikes. <laughs> right, but 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 if you're driving around, you're you're noticing the gas prices are going down. So um, presumably that'll that'll help lower the the inflation inflation measures. And the for what it's worth category, Joel, I did bike today, and I and what I tell everybody is there's no such thing as bad weather when you have the right gear. There you go. I like that. Well, maybe that does add to the cost a little bit then, making sure you're, <laughs> you're prepared for the rainstorm that's going on out there right now. We were joking before the podcast that uh, we'll probably see some surfers on the drive home. There's uh, some pretty good waves out there on Lake Michigan today. Uh, a, a pleasure to do the podcast for you, staring out over the lake. We'd love to ha- have you in the office and stare out over the lake with us. If, uh, if there is ever anything we can do, you give us a call. But as always, we enjoy doing the podcast for you, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Money Talk with Bob Landis. If you have a financial question you want answered on next week's show, email it to moneytalk@landis.com. To keep informed throughout the week, visit our Money Talk page at landis.com. <laughs>